Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm Stephen Dimmitt. A quick note before we dive into today's episode, I recently launched something new for the podcast. I've been busy recording some follow-up calls with past guests from the show, and I will be releasing one of them every other week as bonus content for patrons. If you check your podcast app regularly, you likely saw the teaser I posted last week of my first follow-up call with Ethan Pringle. You can listen to an 18-minute teaser to get a sense of what the follow-up calls are all about, and that was from a roughly 50-minute conversation that I had with Ethan. Follow-up calls will typically be shorter than normal podcast episodes. Most of them will be roughly 20 to 30 minutes, but occasionally will go longer. And we'll be talking about recent accomplishments. I'll be trying to connect with guests after big sends to hear all the gritty details. And I'll also try to do a deep dive into a specific topic that that particular guest is interested in. Could be a topic related to performance climbing, tactics, etc., the things the rest of us need to hear to help our climbing. You can get full access to follow-ups for $5 per month. You can sign up at patreon.com slash thenuggetclimbing, or you can learn more at thenuggetclimbing.com. You'll find a big announcement on the homepage. Okay, today's guest on the podcast is Tande Katio. Tande is a professional root setter, but he's really so much more than that. He teaches root setting, he coaches a couple of the best climbers in the world, and he really is a leader in our community and industry. I have tremendous respect for this man, and I had so much fun talking to him that this is going to have to be another two-parter. We talked for almost three hours, so I decided to split this one up. In part one, we talked about the connection between root setting and coaching, and about Tande's role as coach for Nathan Hadley. Sean Bailey, and Margot Hayes. We talked about Tande's competition background and how that has informed his setting and coaching. Tande has an interesting heritage. His mother is French and his father is Zimbabwean. And we talked about two Instagram posts that he shared during the peak of the BLM protests, one about his discrimination resume and another about his privilege resume. We also talked about exposing his kids to risk and how he thinks about that, about what he hopes the world looks like for them when they grow up, and about doing his part to make a better world through making better climbing. So much insight from this man. I took a ton away from our conversation, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy part one of this insightful conversation with Tande Katio. Okay, you sent me something very funny earlier, and I, I thought we could lead in with that. Okay. <laughs> you, you and I have been kind of struggling to to pin down a time for this. I've been busy, you've been busy. And oh, yeah. we were texting a couple days ago, and I didn't hear back from you, so you know we just checked in today. But it sounds like you had typed up a reply but you got distracted by something that came up <laughs> and yeah. didn't send it are you willing to, to share what happened absolutely <laughs> um i have a two-year-old and he is currently potty training so i was distracted because i was cleaning feces from various surfaces of the house which 
I mean, out of context, if you're a parent, everyone is going to relate to it because, mm. I mean, that's the nature of potty training. Uh, you get very comfortable with pee and poop, um, provided it comes from your children. Um, but yeah, that's what I was doing. <laughs> so there was a fully, because when I looked at your message, there was like a fully typed message, like four lines, like suggesting times and stuff like this, um, but just unsent. And I was like, oh, he's probably wondering where I am. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, just life of a parent. Yeah, it all worked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you end up climbing today? I did. I had a really shitty session. But, oh, damn. Yeah. Indoors. Um, indoors. Yeah, it's it was raining pretty bad, and it happens. You know, yeah. uh, you. I mean, you always have kind of a vague idea of what it is you want to do and how you want it to go down, and then things get in the way. Mm. Uh, specifically, we have uh, limited operations in our gyms, in most gyms, in everywhere right now, um, and the gym was at capacity, so I mm. basically got there and couldn't uh just couldn't access the climbing i had intended so i tried to do other things botched it then tried to get back on track and do a session botched that too um and then yeah left the gym yeah well it happens yeah i this is a story a really good friend of mine uh i used to climb with in in france in paris where where i grew up um I was having a bad day like this and he was like, Tande, for every good session, you have to have at least 10 crap sessions. Oh, so wow. start collecting. We're going to go climbing. <laughs> start collecting. <laughs> it's like, start, you start collecting, you know. Ah, is that uh, true? That's a rough ratio, man. Uh, I think it's probably true. Think about yeah. how many like absolutely amazing, like really good sessions you yeah. have yeah. on average. Think about how many times you climb a week. I think that's pretty realistic, mm. honestly. One in every two weeks for me. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's that's about right. Yeah, I guess so. And yeah, I think it's so. Steve Bechtel. I think he says, you know, for every one really good one, seven mediocre. This math's not going to add up. Six mediocre, and then three really crap ones. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So we're in the same ballpark. Cherish the good ones. Exactly, and. Don't worry about the terrible ones. That's the other mm. thing. It's just like you're doing the work. Mm. So and it's, it's necessary. The good ones don't happen without the bad ones. Mm-hmm. That's, so whatever. I did my work today. Got home. Ate pizza. Good to go. <laughs> talking <laughs> with you. All right. <laughs> you're one session closer to that really good one. Yeah. And I had a, a few pretty good ones in the past few weeks. So I'm not nothing to complain about. Okay. Last yeah. I checked in with you, you were just kind of getting back in shape. Are you back into like a training routine or, or um, yeah, just getting back in the swing of things? Yeah. It's still kind of loose and uh, there's a few routes I, I'm interested in doing. Um, so because I didn't climb very much during like the past few months, quarantine and summer, I just knew like because motivation came back, I was like, oh, it's going to take a few sessions, you know, probably to get back to where I want to be to climb as hard as I want to. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with the progress. Um, I've been able to get outside quite a bit, at least twice a week. Nice. Um, yeah. And ticked a few of my, Nathan and I climbed the other day and we have like, I ticked my like level one sort of uh, goals. <laughs> okay. Which is like, you know, getting back up to like resending, you know, 
12 Ds and 12 Cs and Ds that I'd done before, but, you know, just get them to feeling comfortable. And, and so now I've moved on to like level two goals for the next, you know, few weeks. Okay. So awesome. Yeah, break it down to make it more digestible, short term plans. Have you guys been climbing an index or a little sigh or? A uh, little sigh. Okay. Um, index, not yet, but I'm excited to go back there in the next few weeks. Okay. And hopefully I'm going to get to Leavenworth tomorrow. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. That sounds dry. So that's perfect. I'm going to go take the fam camp and climb a few boulders, maybe visit uh, a new sports crag that I heard about there. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'll have to check in with you and see how that goes. I'd, I'd love to yeah. do more sport climbing in that zone, <laughs> in that area. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's beautiful over there. So you just mentioned Nathan. You and I connected through uh, my friend Nathan Hadley. Yeah. And uh, he's my friend too. <laughs> our, <laughs> our friend Nathan Hadley. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't heard of you before that. You know, it, it was it was really fun to hear some of your other podcasts, watch some some videos featuring you and some of your presentations and all this stuff, and, and get to know you a little bit. But. Mm-hmm. So you're a root setter, but your role has changed a little bit. What What is your current role at the bouldering project? Um, so I'm basically director of setting. Um, it's a bit complicated just because there were some changes that happened uh, just pre-COVID. Okay. That my title changed. Uh, but then because of COVID and all the lockdowns, we weren't able to implement any of that project. So for all intents and purposes, I'm still director of setting. That's what I do is sort of guide the root setting at the bouldering projects. Yeah, I would say that's my main occupation. I called Nathan a couple weeks ago and picked his brain. I I was curious what to talk to you about because it (laughs) seemed like there was just an endless number of ways we could take this conversation. And, you know, he, he credited you for bringing the circuit system to the bouldering project. That was something that, mm-hmm. I, that I talked to him quite a bit about in our episode. And um, yep. it sounds like you also, you, I, I think he said you came in in 2011 and asked for like 400 volumes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And that was what led the, the bouldering project to start making their own volumes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the only way that it was going to happen. Yeah. But that whole period was kind of surreal for me because uh, starting with the job interview, I, I was invited to set for a comp. They had a comp every year called North, Northwest Boulder Fest. So this is like 2012. And so they invited me to set for the comp and then planned like a job interview, basically, like, you know, the day after the comp. So I, I was there. I sat all week. I got to, you know, meet people and get a sense for the team and, you know, the vision and I came away with this impression that, you know, the sort of the ethos and the, the, the um, I guess, the vision they had for the root setting was really based in some of the North American values. And I was coming from Europe and I had very different ideas. And, and I was like pretty much by halfway through the comp, 100% convinced there was no chance in hell they were going to hire me because I wanted <laughs> to do everything differently. So the funny thing is because... I was convinced they were definitely not going to hire me. I just went into the interview going like, I'll just tell them everything I think. And, you know, that'll just seal mm. the deal, confirm things. And and so this question came up of like, if you were head root setter right now, what would you do? And I was like, well, I can go all in because, you know, 
So I said, well, I'd buy, you know, 500 volumes. I'd, <laughs> you know, throw out half the holds. I'd buy, you know, another 50 grand in holds and I would implement circuits and improve the, you know, the range of movement. And I flew home. My wife and daughter were, we were on a road trip at the time. So they were waiting for me in Denmark. And so I flew back to to Norway and I told my wife, yeah, it was a great trip. It's a beautiful gym, like, you know, really cool people, but they're not going to hire me because like there's too much discrepancy. And I was like, so shocked when they, like two days later, they were like, yep, we want to do this. How quickly can we get you here? <laughs> oh, I was wow. like, what? <laughs> um, and then the crazy thing is I, you know, I kind of had sold this vision, right? I was like, well, you know, I, basically told them what I would do in a dream world. Even <laughs> European gyms wouldn't have done this at the time. And so they hired me on. And then, you know, sure enough, day one, my boss, Chris, comes and like, okay, so uh, tell us what you need to do this vision thing you want. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Uh, excuse, excuse me. <laughs> and seriously, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> there, there are a couple of concepts or ideas that are like real strengths of the circuit systems that, you know, I now... I flaunt as like, oh, this is one of the great features of, you know, uh, circuits that honestly, I only kind of finagled because I had to, I kind of had sold this promise and I had to make it work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> do you, so, do you have, do you have an example of, of what sure, you're talking about Sure. Like one of the key examples is, um, the circuit system have, the way we have it run at uh, the bouldering project is the circuit, the color circuits are, each of them is three, three V grades. Mm. So zero, one, and two, and then two, three, and four, et cetera. Um, but they, the, the circuits overlap. So the first circuit is zero to two. And then, uh, the next circuit starts at V1, you know, mm. so, so there's overlap in the grades. And so there's certain grades that can be covered by three different colors. Um, okay. So this creates this really like ease for people to find progression and try boulders of the next level, but potentially a boulder from the next color level can be easier than something from the lower color level, hmm. you know, because of that overlap and they're not butted end to end. The reason I did that initially is because when I did the math, I didn't have enough holds to set the whole gym if I did it, <laughs> if I did it any other way. So I was stuck on this for like a whole month and, you know, kind of reluctant to go to my boss and say, well, I kind of promised something I can't do. And, and then I figured out this, well, if I, you know, if I slide them over each other, then that reduces the number of, of, uh, I can basically set, you know, if I need to set 65 V4s, I can do that which I couldn't do with a single color mm. without making things, you know, super lopsided. Mm. Um, so it solved the problem, but then it turned out to be a really good solution because it created this, this, you know, fluidity between the levels that honestly is much more representative of what climbing is. Mm. So it's the product of an accident, you know, that's, um, that's so neat. I, I could really see that helping combat some of the you know, limiting self-beliefs that we so often have when we are, you know, when we're climbing one grade and we're intimidated by the next grade or whatever that is. Yeah. Essentially, the problem with grades is we treat them as if they were like a fixed measurement. Mm. You know, we, we treat them like feet and meters and, <laughs> and they're absolutely everything but that, you know, they're... this is something I've like, people who've taken my, my setting courses have heard me say many times, one meter is one meter in Japan. It's one meter at the top of the Everest. It's one meter in Paris. V6 
in all of those three <laughs> different places is 100% guarantee a very, very different thing. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like, yeah, of course, of course it's different. But we still, you know, we all, when we, as soon as we talk about grades, we're like, oh, it's V6. Oh, that's not V6. Or this is V6. Or, you know, it can't possibly be V6. And it's like, well, there's really no standard. It's just objective and weird consensuses and grades are really strange things. Mm. But yeah, so that's one example of like something that, you know, it was a really rich and exciting period for, for my work um, as a setter. Uh, and I'm really grateful to the people at the Bouldering Project to have been, you know, so supportive, so encouraging, to have so much faith in me, just basically like gave me the product of their gym to reshape basically entirely. Mm. And I think it was pretty, pretty revolutionary. Um, so I, I may have done, you know, part of the work, the important things to keep in context when, when we talk about the changes that happened at, at Seattle Bouldering Project at that time is sure. Like I spearheaded some of those ideas, but first of all, they were just adaptations of very common ideas in Europe. So mm. I didn't really invent that much. And, and then the other one was like, you know, the owners of BP had the stones mm -hmm. to like, they had a, a gym that was doing perfectly well you know they were booming business they didn't need to change anything but they opted to you know have their own character and give personality to that setting and they took the risk of giving to some weird obscure french guy that no one had ever heard of <laughs> hey i i give them a lot of credit for that so <laughs> but yeah really inspiring period in my career for sure that is so cool yeah. As far as the circuits go, uh, that is something I talked pretty extensively with Nathan about in that episode. Mm -hmm. If people are, are curious about some of the other benefits of, of that system, they can check that out. Yeah. When I was talking with Nathan on the phone, there was one thing that really stood out to me. I wasn't sure mm -hmm. you know, what I wanted to focus on with you. And you've, you've done a number of other podcasts and you've covered a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, I love the way you talk about root setting as experience design. Mm -hmm. You know, really crafting a, a climber's experience and translating outdoor climbing to indoor climbing experiences. I, I think that is so cool. The The thing that really stood out, though, is actually your coaching. Mm -hmm. That's something that, that I had no idea about. I think even when Nathan first told me that I should, um, that, that you would be a great person to have on the show, I don't think he mentioned that you had coached him. Mm -hmm. And then I find out later that you've not only coached him, but you also coach Sean Bailey and Margot Hayes and mm -hmm. it sounds like those are the three athletes that you coach and each of those three really reached out to you and had to kind of talk you into it <laughs> so <laughs> yeah is that, fair to say? A, that is very fair to say yeah. uh, I'm a reluctant coach and I, I like I kind of want to thank them officially you know yeah. because um, it's been a really great experience like a learning experience for me um, but I'm definitely, I, I still am to this day somewhat a reluctant coach. Hmm. Um, the rationalization I've come up with is that the, basically because of my extensive experience root setting and then obviously climbing, you know, uh, outdoors as well, I, I just have a particular set of information and a particular perspective on performing, on how to climb that is it's just different you know mm. it's not it doesn't come from the same place that um 
I mean, the reason I'm reluctant to be a coach is because I have done zero studying of coaching, zero, you know, and I feel like to call yourself a coach next to people, you know, you cited Steve Bechtel, but, you know, Chris Hampton, uh, there's so many people out there who just really invest a lot of time, who've been to school for it, who, you know, I, I'm very respectful of that profession. Uh, I think it's very valuable and very powerful. And like, not everybody can just say they're a coach because, you know, they, you know, pop out a couple of advice, you know, to people or gave the right data on one route. It's, it's a little more complicated than that. But, uh, my career includes like, you know, 10 world cups, setting nationals in 15 different countries. I set world championships. I, you know, I've set gyms, you know, all over the world. And from doing that, I have acquired a certain uh, vision on how to climb, how to climb hard or easy, actually, because I'm really interested in like the work I do at SBP is how to make really easy climbing look really good be really exciting to somebody who's never climbed before, mm. um, you know, to share that emotion to sh and to do it, get them, engage them in an experience that's going to be like a super positive one, you know, and it's about the right things that the right experience that's going to make their experience, like their time in a climbing gym, um, you know, feel exciting and feel engaging and challenging in the right way and so it's just about observing people and seeing how you can help them do better. Hmm. The other thing is root setters make climbing, right? We literally cook it up like <laughs> the, you know. Um, so we also, because we, we compose the ingredients of what makes something hard or challenging or, well, by virtue of that we also understand how you should what you should do to climb it properly mm. right or climb it better and so after a while i just realized that that information communicated in the right way is helpful to people trying to do better at climbing hard so mm. and as you correctly pointed out uh all three of those people convinced me to do it like <laughs> they talked me into it <laughs> So, so yeah. I'd love to ask, do you have a sense of, of what it was about you or what they thought you could offer them that, that caused each of those three to seek out your coaching? Uh, you'd have to ask them, okay. honestly. I, I mean, I maybe it's just because I was right about a few things, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I, as, a, as a setter and to be able to produce like the highest quality setting or the most interesting or most different things. I spend a lot of time observing people, mm. um, observing climbers. And I have a running joke with actually with everyone, including my wife who doesn't think it's funny anymore, but <laughs> I basically, I just, I say, I'm always right. Like my data is always right. It's always the right one. Um, it's, it's actually, it's not actually true, but, uh, just again, it's not that I'm specially right, but because I'm a setter and because I have spent so much time observing those things, I think I just have insight into how and why people succeed. Hmm. Um, I'm also interested in it, not from like a pure movement uh, perspective, but I think from uh, the parts that really interest me is like emotion and intention. Uh, because I think 
those are really key parts of climbing in particular, but a lot of performance. And that's what has inspired me uh, in setting. And I have used as cues for my own route setting. Hmm. Um, and also for my, like my coaching, when I try and advise people, I don't necessarily tell them like, oh, you know, put your hand this way or do the sequence this way. I, I encourage people maybe to like try more hard or less hard or, you know, hmm. uh, just try and gauge things and make a, a connection with the thing that they're trying to overcome. And yeah, so I think those ideas resonated with those people in our interactions and I guess prompted them maybe to, to want to explore those avenues. Mm-hmm. But I'm speculating, honestly, you'd have to ask all three of them, like, why? I, sometimes I wonder myself, like, <laughs> why? 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 <laughs> uh, well, well, that is so interesting. Something that you just said, I, I have a note here from my conversation with Nathan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was talking to me about a few of the things, a few of the specific things that you helped coach him through. Yeah. And one was, we were talking about attitude and... Yep. You know, not only did you help him with confidence and self-belief, but this idea of teaching someone how to make decisions about when to apply the appropriate amount of effort. You were just talking mm-hmm. about, you know, climbing harder or, or, or trying harder rather or trying less hard. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to ask about that, but I'm just so curious is how do you think about teaching climbers how to, how to think about when to apply the appropriate amount of effort? I think it's a really, it's a hard thing to teach. For me, generally, it's more about getting, like, in Nathan's case, it, like, Nathan is an extremely smart climber. He already had a ton of experience. Actually, all three athletes I work with are in that case. And I'm always extremely kind of respectful of the fact that, you know, they've already achieved a ton of stuff without me. Mm. Uh, so it's... Uh, but in in spite of that, it doesn't mean that they're always perfect. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean they have great days. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes or go off track. And one of the things about coaching is just establishing a relationship of trust, so you can have those things pointed out, or you can think about things. And more specifically, uh, it it is hard to to talk about the appropriate amount of effort. I think. It's the idea of, for me, climbing is a fantastically complex activity. Mm. Um, For sure, I think the aspect that gets talked about way too much is the physical training aspect of it. But at the same time, pretty much, I'm sure pretty much every single climber you've talked to, or you've probably experienced this yourself, has had this thing of like either sending a route when you were like, you know, still half drunk from a party the night before. And, you know, you send things basically at a, at a moment where by the science, it shouldn't happen. Mm. You're supposed to be exhausted. It's the last burn of the day. It's, it's counterintuitive to what science says, basically, you know, you should be fresh. You should be this, you should be, should have done, you know, and, and the send happens at some odd period. And I was always really interested in those moments hmm. when people start to say, oh, I have a mental block. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> this is really interesting to me. Another classic one is like you climb a project like 50 times and every time you fall at the same move, pull right back up. So you're actually making an effort as you yank yourself up on the rope 
literally throw yourself back on the wall and then go to the top. And mm. you do that 50 times in a row. <laughs> you, like you've heard these stories, right? Sure. Why does that happen? Because it's definitely not a physical problem, you know? And so then gets, it gets thrown in this crate, uh, this junk crate in the back of the, in the back of your brain that says, oh, it's a mental problem. Hmm. But no one digs into like, what is that mental problem? You know, why are you not dealing with that thing? And I'm really interested in dealing with that thing. <laughs> and effectively, for me, in my climbing experience, what I found is it tends to come down to emotions, which are like really like another box. There's like the mental box, which has strategy and what to do and attitude in it. But then there's also like, even if you're doing all the right things, you can still be terrified of a given route or, you know, scared of falling at a certain point or afraid to re-injure something because a certain move is tweaky or, and you're just ignoring it. You're just like, you don't want to address it. So I think there's like, there's a process where if you, if you can understand what is happening or why it's happening, you can solve it. And hmm. so um, that process involves asking questions. And, and I like the idea that the dials we have to adjust our performance, especially at the higher levels, looks like, you know, those, those recording mixing tables in recording studios with like a gazillion knobs <laughs> on it, you know, and it's about just finding the right one that's going to make. But if you zoom out a little bit and you listen to things in, in an overview, it sounds like there's only one switch. There's only one slider and you just got to push it to the max. Let's go hard all the time. Mm. And it's wrong. I've experienced like sometimes actually, you know, stepping back, climbing less, or trying to relax on a route. Um, one thing I learned about myself and I have found to be true about a lot of other people is when we pick a project and we spend a few weeks on it, and it's hard, you know, it's like the first time you don't get to the top and you look at videos and you create in your head this idea that it's a hard route. And it stays hard in your head, even if you're doing the moves and sending, you know, sending whole sections. And, and every time you send it, you're like psyching yourself up for this really hard thing, but you're two weeks into working it. So the, the feeling of what hard is has changed. Hmm. It, it's not, you know, it's not completely unknown. It is, you know what the moves are, you know where it's going to be hard, you know what is hard about it. And so because that's the case, well, you probably can pull back, pull back some of those dials to something a bit more relaxed where you don't, you know, over psych yourself or so, I don't know. It's like you said, it's hard to ask questions about it. It's also hard to talk about, but I guess that's, uh, does that explanation make any sense? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how I think about, you know, performance is figure out who, who people are, first mm. of all, and what it is they're trying to do and why, because there's a really very, very wide um, variety of people and attitudes and energies that are trying to, you know, send the same route or win the same comp. And, and because they're so different, you can't give them the same advice, you know, hmm. um, something that works for one person won't work for another. And I am really interested in one thing in coaching that, I, that really does excite me is this concept of being, of saying exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Like it works with encouragement. You know, if you're watching somebody on a route and, you know, you're just waiting for the moment where they like, 
pull through the crux finally. And then one of the like most common and really like good things to tell people is like, okay, calm down now, like chill out. You've done the crux. Now you just have to like stay focused and go to the top. Don't mess anything up. Mm. Do really good climbing. <laughs> and if you can inject like the right pieces of information at the right moments, I think it's, you can really help people. Mm. Um, it's just really hard to know what to say because you can say the wrong thing and then you can say it at the wrong time. So it's kind of a lot of moving targets, uh, but it's really interesting. Yeah. In, uh, in preparation for this, I was watching a video presentation that you gave and you were talking <laughs> about your own competition experience. And oh yeah. It, it sounds like it did just didn't really go that well for you. It sounds like you were really bad at it. At I was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to ask, how has your own experience with competition informed your coaching? Um, I think the the interesting arc for me was being a youth competitor with no coach. Um, so really like struggling a lot, uh, just doing, basically doing everything wrong, overtraining, uh, being terrified at comps, you know, underperforming. Um, I think I got injured multiple times in comps and just never connecting with it. And this is like several years maybe from 13 through 17 18 something like this and then quitting and being like i hate competition this is not for me and then rock climbing for several years after that and then when i became a route setter going kind of behind the scenes to of larger competitions and spending more time with real competitors and understanding the mechanics of what is happening in a competition and then thinking back to like my experiences and being like, Oh, well, no wonder I sucked at it. And just hmm. understanding the full, that full range of both sides of what is happening. And interestingly enough, there was a little bracket in, in between those two periods where I did compete again. Uh, but essentially because I worked as a graphic designer in Paris and one of my, like, I was really obsessed with on siting. I was really excited by that idea. And uh, it's not easy to on-site in gyms because the routes don't change that often. So, you know, you run out of routes relatively quickly. Um, but France is fantastic because they have a very developed competition circuit. So during the season, you could, like, basically every two weeks, you could go to a comp, a different comp. And I went back to competing but only as training for going outside. <laughs> I, did it, I did it backwards. I was like, well, it's raining. <laughs> I can't go anywhere else, you know. I might as well just go and do this competition because it'll be on siting, you know, mm. for a day and a half and I'll hang out with my friends and it'll be fun. But the difference was I I couldn't care less about winning. Mm. Like I had no my only objective was climbing well. And what was interesting is those two years that I did that, both years I made it to nationals, oh, which wow. in France is is no joke. Um there's only, I mean, there's like, yeah, there's so many regions, so many good climbers in France. And so, so I got my best results when I cared less, the least mm. about, you know, the activity. So that was also kind of informative about the process. And, and so putting all of those things together, um, I, yeah. And then, you know, being one of the, the key 
instrumental people in making competition what it is, you know, like setting the boulders, setting the level, deciding why something will be difficult, how it's going to be difficult, allowed me to understand people's experience in competition as well. Stress and, mm. you know, also when you think about a route or a set of boulders you have to make, you, you look at the list of competitors who are coming and you want to make it fair. So you're always like scouting, okay, you know, Tall and short is other, like the classic kind of normal things you have to pay attention to. But there's so many other things, you know, um, to make it as fair as possible. There's just certain people, you know, are really, really, really good on crimps. So if you set five crimp boulders, well, you advantage them. You know, mm -hmm. if the key, the instrumental hold on each boulder is a crimp, well, you know. So, so yeah. Putting like all of those experiences together helped me understand how I failed and then how to make better competitions for other people, how to make it, you know, uh, a good experience. And as a byproduct, how to help people do better at them, you know. So, hmm. so yeah, so the combination of all my experience put together. I watched a short video about you called Why Rock Climbing Shouldn't Always Be Fun. And oh, Yeah. <laughs> And uh, one thing you said in that just came to mind. It was so interesting. I'd never thought about it before, but you were talking about setting for competitions and how your job really is to frustrate the athletes and frazzle them to see who's best. Like that, that well, really is the competition is to see you can handle that and bounce back. Well, it's not necessarily to, I mean, it's, it's honestly, that example is, is getting old now. Okay. It, it, I, 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 it's still relevant, but effectively what I was saying is that one of the tools that I use to see who is the best that day is also mental aspects. So it's not just about, can you hold this tiny? Um, so uh, when I, like when I brief a team at the start of a setting, say a, a bold setting comp and I say, okay, well, today we're going to set, you know, a, a four round finals. And effectively we will have the six best climbers at this competition. And we need to ask them four really good questions four very different questions and depending on how well each person answers those questions a winner will be decided hmm. that's how i like to think about it because there's a really delicate part about route setting where we have so much control over the playing field where are we deciding who wins you know hmm. and i think if we're not careful we can create biases hmm. you know um, and it's really hard to not do that. So, so effectively it's just, you know, trying to figure out what are all the relevant climbing related or athletic related questions that we can ask these people to surprise them, engage them, inspire them and make them show their best climbing. Hmm. That's, that's always what I'm really interested in. And the truth is, what I've seen of climbing, sometimes the best climbing is like holding on to some ridiculously small hold or sticking some amazing dyno. Those things qualify, but it's not limited to that. Sometimes it's just the tenacity of somebody not giving up on something. Hmm. And so I'm just interested when I'm, I'm in love with climbing. And when I effectively, if I'm testing you at a climbing competition, I want to make sure one of the key questions I want answered is, are you a climber? You know, can you do the full, can you handle the whole full thing? Or are you just, um, are you just an athlete? Interesting. Just, you know, and wow. for me, what an interesting question. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, the hand jam at Myringen last year, which 
created so much, you know, uproar. And I was like, how is this, you know, how is this a scandal? <laughs> a hand jam is a classic move in literally like, conservatively what 40 percent of climbing in the world is basically <laughs> jamming you know a lot of the most popular climbing in the world right now all honald stuff everything happening in yosemite <laughs> is all hand jamming and there's one literally two moves of hand jamming in a boulder world cup and people are like oh this is so crazy and you know <laughs> it's a climbing competition why is this such a surprise you know mm. so i think that's for me, it's about, you know, continuing, continuing to be a setters, continuing to ask, you know, relevant climbing questions. And those questions have to be updated all the time because climbing is evolving and growing and people are doing harder and harder things and, and their trends in what's happening. And so, um, I think it's really, it makes it very interactive. It's not like, well, once you have, you understand it, then that's it. You know, you just rinse and repeat, hmm. sort questions, pull them out of the trivial pursuit box no it's it's a living thing and yeah i i am passionate about asking those questions so it's interesting you only coach these three athletes nathan Margot, and, and sean but you do also, mm -hmm. you also do quite a bit of coaching through these training camps that you do yep so you, you did some setting for the french national team and then you were hired by the japanese team and yep. uh, you've been it sounds like you've been evolving this three to five day training camp for some years now. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask, what is the connection between route setting and coaching in these training camps that you do? I mean, it's basically, it's an exp a training camp is an explainer on how to, uh, how to do better at a competition. Okay. You know? Um, so there's lots of ways to do training camps. The, the part that I know how to, you know, um, address and the part I was hired for, all these training camps you're talking about relate specifically to bouldering competitions. Okay. Um, so again, there's a bit of uh, luck and privilege in that I grew up in, as a climber in, in France, in Paris. And then when I decided to pass my national route setter certification, which is interesting to note, I was dragged to by my friends. I didn't want to <laughs> go. <laughs> um, Jackie Godoff, who is a famous... Mm boulderer and you know has developed route setting a lot for the french federation for the international federation was my instructor that's just who was running the course and then when later on i tried to break into more professional route setting i reached out to him because i knew him and he gave me work at the french national training center okay um which uh, was in still is i oh well no was in fontainebleau at the time for bouldering and so i got opportunities to basically set boulders for the French national team to train on. So that's where I started understanding kind of the, the structure and the mechanics of what these uh, training camps were about. And essentially, it's basically running a mock comp and then getting people to understand what they did wrong and then giving them the opportunity to correct that and perfect it so that when those situations arise in a competition, they can do better at them. Hmm. So that's, that's where that three to five day model comes from. And honestly, it's closer to three just because of how hard those days are. Okay. Climbing an onsite circuit is already very taxing when you have to climb it twice in the same day. Uh, that's a lot. And then when you do that two days in a row, 
usually by the time you're you're done with two days there's you there's no more bandwidth to do anything else mm. and so that's basically the model of what i ran for many years is setting two rounds of competition generally pushing uh complexity of the situation very high so forcing the climbers to to be in very uncomfortable situations so um, the Japanese team, which is famous now for how strong they are, but I set circuits for them several times where basically two climbers got maybe two bonuses in the whole circuit, just to give you a kind of a gauge of the experience that, that we exposed them to. Okay. Um, so I say we because all of this work is always done in collaboration with the national coaches. So okay. certainly I suggest and I inject ideas, but you know, uh, coaching, especially a, a team, is a collaborative effort. So there's always multiple people helping. Uh, you know, I might introduce an idea, but then, you know, there's lots of contributions and questions, sometimes requests from the coaches. But, yeah, that's effectively the idea. And, again, a lot of, like, I'm working with already the best athletes in each of these countries. I don't need to help tell them how to train or how to climb better or, you know, what I do need to help them with is how to resolve these weird puzzles that I'm composing and how to climb them, how to understand them, because sometimes there's that. You don't get off the ground because you don't even know how to. And connect that to the broader coaching work that the national coaches team do, which is connect that to regular training sessions, connect it to how this is going to feel when you do it in a foreign country with jet lag, with, you know, mm. not your usual food and a lot of markers and things out of place, being in ISO with the strongest climbers in the world, the intimidation factor, the mental stress, the all the things have to be, you know, uh, factored in so that it's realistic, as realistic as possible. Hmm. Because the truth is a lot of people fail not because they're not strong enough, but just because they're overwhelmed by stress, because they didn't sleep well, because just like peripheral things that seem anecdotal. But if you're an athlete, they matter a lot. Mm -hmm. So being a climber is one thing and being an athlete for a high-end competition can be slightly different. And yeah, the work I did was really in particular working on the mental and the tactical game, understanding that winning a competition is not about topping every boulder. It's about understanding the rules, understanding the system, understanding what you need to do to get to the next round. And if you mm. make it to finals, then you go all out. But, Interesting. Yeah. But again, yeah, so much of that is, is head games. And it was, it's really interesting setting for some of the best, most talented climbers in the world. And... Basically, you know, I can't outclimb them, but I can, I can mess with their heads. I can mess with their emotions, not because, not because it's a, I have the power to do that, but because it's the reality of what happens in a competition. Mm -hmm. Fear and stress, intimidation, uh, feeling bad about yourself because you made a mistake. Um, so the one you talked about, frustration, um, the classic, classic thing is you know, a lot of frustration and failure on Boulder One. And that puts you in a tailspin that you can't recover from. And you bungle boulders that would have otherwise been fine because you feel, oh, that's it. I failed. Like I should have done this. And you're sitting in the chair and hearing other people do it. And you just get into your own head. And the next boulder is basically like 100% your style, but you're still like looking down the pads at 
you know, something that happened before mm. and you bungle this one too because your head's not in the right place. And that happens in various forms, but it happens in the gym. It happens in, you know, it happens to people outside warming up on their proj. And then, you know, some French 17-year-old girl comes and onsites their project in front of them. And all of a sudden, bleh, the wind goes out of you and you, you know, you just inside don't feel like you have it anymore. And yeah, and things fall apart. Uh, when they don't need to, it's a, you know, it's just about understanding that emotion, putting it aside. And so, yeah, I'm really interested in helping athletes work through that. Coming back to this idea of, of saying the right thing at the right time and how powerful mm -hmm. that can be, you know, let, let's take, um, an outdoor climber, someone who did just bungle the red point attempt and, mm -hmm. you know, that it was their first go of the day. They have another try or two, maybe conditions aren't quite as good as they were, or maybe they're even better, but they're hung up on that first attempt that didn't go so well. Yeah. Do you know what you would say to, to someone in that scenario if you were coaching them? No, because it depends on, <laughs> <laughs> it depends on who it is. <laughs> You know, uh, fair, fair enough. <laughs> it, 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 it's very, it's very specific. Like, hmm. you know, uh, what do you I say think, to yourself? Well, one thing that I, I, regardless of who that person would be, what I would do is ask, first of all, I would ask, how do you feel? That's a, a question that's really, I think, overlooked hmm. is how do you feel about, you know, this performance right now and you have to understand how you feel doesn't necessarily correlate with how you're going to perform because we again we've all had this experience of feeling like shit and sending anyway mm -hmm. or feeling like you're on top of the world and not doing anything like <laughs> i don't even need to like illustrate these because anybody who's been climbing for a, like you know some a, at least a few years has had this experience mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and so it's just about making that connection, you know, of like understanding what you, how do you feel right now? What do you feel capable of doing? What's worrying you? And if you can identify that, then there's a better chance of you putting it aside and giving and producing your best climbing. That climbing might not give you the send you want that day, but if you can at least produce your best climbing that's available on that day, then that's a win, hmm. you know? You can't pick roots every single time, but if at least every single time you can do a little better, that's, that's a real thing. So, but it's hard. It's real hard. <laughs> so, and that question, how do you feel is not as easy to answer as a lot of people think. Hmm. It, it comes down to being really honest and in uh, just as human beings it's just not a good thing we're good at <laughs> in general <laughs> and there's a lot of questions that i ask like margot and sean in particular and they're very personal questions and i tell them i don't want you to answer this question to me i want you to answer this question for yourself hmm. that's the, that's the only person who needs to know the answer to this question right now you know is this issue bothering you? Is this person's presence an issue for you? Is, you know, and I don't need to know. I'm just asking the question. And if the answer is no, and you're sure, then we have to look somewhere else. But in general, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of moments. Um, like I can think back to my experience as a competition climber myself, when if I had asked, I'd been asked that question, my answer would have been, I'm terrified. I'm here alone. All these people are here with coaches and teams. I feel completely isolated and I don't know what to do. 
I like, I don't know how to warm up. I'm not doing my usual warm up. I'm so from there, it's pretty simple, you know, uh, for me, but asking that question and actually being honest, not so easy. I'd love to come to come back to a tangible thing with Nathan's training sure, or coaching rather talking to him on the phone, you know, he has, Nathan is an incredible rock climber and he's done a lot of really hard, very technical climbing. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about working with you on his footwork. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, he has impeccable footwork. I mean, he's climbed, he did the first ascent of the first 514 index, which is a notoriously super technical area and has some of the worst yep. footholds in the world. And he really credited you with, uh, with helping him with that. Mm-hmm. How did you guys work on his footwork? Was that something you worked on in the gym or outdoors? Or um, I actually noticed it more outdoors. The gym, it's rare that climbing gyms actually offer foot-intensive situations that actually reveal anybody's footwork. Hmm. And if you think about it, it's like, when was the last time you couldn't stand on a foot in a climbing gym? Because mm-hmm. it's not very popular. You know, nobody wants to be zipping off a foothold, you know, a hundred times in a row. Um <laughs> But yeah, we were climbing, I think we were climbing in Little Sai actually. And I was noticing a lot of foot slips at very key moments. Again, it's just about observation. And what's interesting with Nathan is he didn't always fall. Like he would grab a hold and then he'd be standing on a foothold. And as he started pulling up, his foot would pop off the wall, mm. you know? So it wouldn't pull him off the wall, but it was like something was off there. And in Nathan's case, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe he got physically stronger. This, it's common when people move up in physical ability. Like you do a training cycle and you come back to projects and you're significantly stronger. What happens is you tend to overcompensate with your upper body. So you mm. pull yourself onto the handholds and you're essentially like unweighting your feet. So it's just about, in Nathan's case, it was just about moving the energy from like his shoulders, chest area, lower into his hips hmm. and, you know, just kind of centering where his power was coming from for the, the power to be like equally balanced between, you know, lower and, and upper body. And that helped a lot, you know, hmm. um, because his footwork is good. It's very good. Uh, he's, you know, definitely an experienced rock climber, like most people who've climbed in Smith Rock, which I haven't, but it's pretty much a signature of anyone who spent a significant amount of time in, in Smith has amazing footwork. Um, I was listening to Drew's podcast with you today, earlier today, and I was reminded of that. Like one of Drew's like crazy qualities is his ability to stand on a tiptoe far away and his yeah. foot nev- never moves. It's like his, for, for someone that young and, you know, he has like very, very mature and very high quality footwork, hmm. um, which probably has something to do with, you know, his incredible performance these days. Um, <laughs> probably something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to deny the fact that he's an absolute beast yeah. <laughs> you know, f- f- physically, that's undeniable, but I'm a firm believer that physical strength doesn't cut, doesn't just do it. So to come back to Nathan, yeah, it was, it was just about, it was how, about how he was using the energy in his body, I guess that's the, um, and so we spoke about it and yeah. And there's different ways to address it. I cued him onto like engaging his thigh muscle. Okay. Like 
when you stand on a foothold, uh, a lot of people stand and the energy and the pressure comes from the ankle and no higher. Uh, really good climbers, it comes from like above the knee. Huh. So this is a lesson from like a lot of French climbers that I had. A lot of the, one of my mentors in root setting uh, was famous for spinning and breaking holds off the wall because <laughs> he stood on footholds so goddamn hard every <laughs> single time. It was just hardwired into him that if you didn't tighten your holds or if anything had like a slight crack in it, because we were setting with resin holds at the time, he would like rip it off the wall. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and he climbed in font a lot. So where fo footholds are exceptionally small and foot pressure matters a lot. And there's a lot of different subtleties where you can actually step too hard on a foot. Mm. And, you know, so I grew up with some of those ideas and was lucky enough to learn from some of those people. And because I've never been very strong, I got good at footwork and really interested in it. And, and it's good to point out that, you know, while it's a cool skill and it helps a lot, I know a lot of incredible climbers who don't have terribly good footwork and that's fine, mm. you know. It's this is assumption that we have to be perfect at and at everything, and I subscribe more to the idea that your climbing should resemble your personality. Interesting. And if you are kind of a you know a kind of scrappy, messy, well, that's what your climbing is going to look like. Your hmm. your your the shape of your climbing, if you will, uh, will reflect. You know, and that's also something that I look look for in coaching. When I see people climb and it doesn't look like who they are, I'm like, hmm. oh, there's something off there. Either they're trying to climb like someone else or – and if they can make better and stronger connections between their capacity to perform the expression of their performance, then I tend to find that uh, they perform better. Hmm. So – and you can tell like – in Seyus, for example, I remember being down in the campground at the base of the crag and we had binoculars and we would, you know, on rest days, look up and because we knew who was climbing on what, we would be able to, rec I would be able to recognize just from a silhouette of tiny, tiny person who was climbing on, <laughs> on something. And yeah, at the time, it was just like kind of a fun game to try and guess who was sending and who wasn't. But it led me to this idea that and I think it's true if you do kind of video silhouettes, if you turned everybody's silhouette into just like a black silhouette on a white background and had that as a, a video of them climbing, a lot of people who perform really highly have a very identifiable way to move and, hmm. you know, very specific ways in which they will shake or grab a hold or... Uh, blow or place a foot, the angle of the foot, you know, how they use certain heel hooks, all kinds of things that are really just like a reflection of who they are. And I think that's really cool. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in, in those ideas and, um, yeah, I kind of got lost in the ramble there, but <laughs> well, that's, that's so interesting. I'd love to ask, do, do you think, is there ever a time where someone's personality, you know, and, and that personality being expressed in their climbing holds them back? Yeah, I do. Because uh, going back to like the competition, if I'm going to ask four questions to figure out if you're a good climber on a given day, uh, my hope is that one of those questions will be right up your alley. 
and at least one of the other ones will be completely at the opposition of what you know how to do. And the trick is you understand that this boulder is not my boulder. I am not good at this. I am not comfortable with this. And, but I'm going to do my best on mm. this. And I'm going to, I understand, I don't like moving this way, but this boulder requires me to do that. And so, you know, I have to do a layback. I have to do a hand jam. I have to do, I have to stand on this tiny foot. I have to jump and paddle or whatever it is. I'm not comfortable doing that. But if I want to win this competition, I have to. Mm. Uh, one thing I tell athletes a lot of the time is you don't win competitions on your strengths. You win them on how good you are at your weaknesses. Because mm. you're going to do the boulder that suits you. But that's not the boulder that's going to make a difference for you. Hmm. So in competition, if you have to be complete, you have to be able to do the things you either don't like to do or don't know how to do or are uncomfortable at doing. You know, if you're tall, scrunching up, if you're short, jumping, it's going to come up because it's climbing. It comes up outside and you deal with it then. Now it's coming up here and you have to deal with it here. And again, that, that dealing... Uh, which is, you know, you can either throw a tantrum, kick your bucket across the pads or make this really dramatic fall or, you know, there's a lot of theatrics in, in I would say, in competition climbing, but in climbing in general. There's a lot of making a fuss of not being happy about one thing or another, <laughs> which conveniently avoids honesty quite a bit. Hmm. And, yeah, I think making those connections and being honest, okay, this is the thing I have to do right now. And yeah, you do your best. That's, that's what I always tell my athletes. Like all you can try, all you can give is your best and your best depends on what you have in the tank on that day. It's not what you had on your best day. It's not what you had last week when you were training. It's what you have right now. Cause that's the other inconvenient thing about competitions is you don't choose the time. That's one of the major differences with outdoor climbing hmm. is you don't get to choose your time. The major inconvenience with outdoor climbing is you do choose your time and a lot of people choose wrong. <laughs> mm. Should I take another burn? No. Okay, I'll take another burn anyway. Okay. <laughs> mm. Yeah, little little provocation, but I think there's some truth in that. It's challenging the, maybe the culture of climbing, the habits of climbers, the... And the word is challenge it because it's not about saying it's bad. It's just about understanding that sometimes it's detrimental to our own performance. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. the decisions that we take or the feelings that we have or the strategies that we implement. There's a lot of them that are whatever. But it's surprising how many really good climbers will tell you, I don't know how I sent that at that time or why it just happened. It just came together. Mm. Right. And I'm like, I want to know. <laughs> I want to know why it just came together. That's, that's what, you know, that's a super interesting thing. Because if you answer that question, well, maybe you can do it again more frequently. Hmm. But certainly some of it will be, you know, uh, I think that the, the, the excitement is, this, it's a bit like gambling, you know, hmm. pulling onto that first hold or, you know, clipping that first draw, heading into the crux for the end time there is some of that excitement of like, what's going to happen this time? Yeah, uh -huh. And I do, 
I'm not interested in like canceling that out. Um, I think some of that magic has to stay. So Tande, I want to, I want to shift gears here. Um, like I said, you know, I was clued into who you were through Nathan Hadley and I hadn't heard of you before. So one of the first things I did was got on Instagram and found you on there. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I saw is you had just posted a couple really interesting posts. One was mm-hmm. called your discrimination resume and the other one was titled your privilege resume. And you have a really interesting heritage and I didn't know this before I learned more about you, but your father was uh, Zimbabwean mm-hmm. and your mother French. Mm-hmm. And obviously these posts came out of, uh, you know, what was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement earlier this spring. Yep. If you're comfortable with it, I'd love to read a few examples of your discrimination resume and then your, your privilege resume. Sure. I posted on the internet, so it's public <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> so the, the first one, I'll start with the discrimination resume. Okay. 2003. I was tackled by plainclothes police for running in the street. Their first question was, what did you steal? 1996, for smirking at the suggestion that the chalk on my hands and in my Ziploc bag in my climbing pack was a a narcotic, I was strip searched in a side room of a subway station. I was 16. 1989, during my first visit to the U.S., a white man accused me of stealing things from his vehicle because he found his door ajar. I was nowhere near his car. I was 12, and this is still my most painful memory of a racist incident. And then you shared a, a few, you shared your privilege resume as well, and I, I want to read a few from that. Okay. 1995. By law, I had to choose my citizenship between France and Zimbabwe. Both had compulsory military service. I chose France in part to avoid the live combat I might have I might have seen in Zimbabwe. 1998. At 21, aggravated by weekly ID checks under the anti-terrorism program Vigipirate. How do you pronounce that? Vigipirate. <laughs> <laughs> under the anti-terrorism program Vigipirate, nice. I was able to leave France and study abroad thanks to the free education I had received and my mother's financial support. 2020, I have been able to just go to all the climbing areas I've wanted to. They were made accessible and I can afford it. And also in 2020, I choose to be a black man living in the United States. I, first off, thank you so much for, for sharing those two posts. I, I really appreciate your, your willingness to, to share those. And I thought they were really powerful reading them. Mm-hmm. I'd love to ask you, what was it that made you want to share not just the discrimination resume, which I think is, you know, a little bit more obvious given the the social climate, but what made you want to share that and the privilege resume as well? Um, well, I'm mixed race. So although I'm mixed race, as far as racism is concerned, I'm a black man, but culturally and in my identity and really literally in my life experience. I lived, until I was 13, I lived in Africa, in Zimbabwe, in black culture, literally. My father's black. Uh, I don't speak it anymore, but I spoke some of the traditional language in in Zimbabwe called Shana. And then I moved to France, you know. Um, And I should mention, while I was living in Zimbabwe, 
with having a white mother, having a father who had lived abroad, and I was living in a third world country, we were considered a rich family. We lived in a nice house, you know, uh, in Harare, in the capital city. Uh, we had a huge garden. We had a vehicle, you know. Um, and we're talking about, you know, a country where people had to walk kilometers just to get water, you know, every day, literally every day. So in the balance of society, my status was one thing. And then I moved to France. Um, my parents separated, so I was living just with my mom. And she was struggling to keep us, you know, educated and in in good conditions. Um, but it was rough. We were in, like, a much tougher neighborhoods. We were living in a big, you know, a first world country um, with the, the industry. And, you know, uh, I moved from a school that was mostly attended. You know, I was with, there was three people in my class in Zimbabwe for almost every year until um, I was in middle school. And most of those kids were, because it was a French school in an English-speaking country, they were diplomats' kids, so very wealthy, very comfortable from, you know, um, French-speaking African countries, from Belgium, from France, from Switzerland. And then I moved to literally the inner-city suburbs of Paris, where, you know, I was, what, 14, 13 or 14? And there were kids in my class who were 19, but they, their schooling level was so low that they just had, that was their level, hmm. you know? There were drug deals happening in the schools. Uh, you know, fights were settled with, uh, with knives multiple times in my school years in Paris. I saw people leave in ambulances from being slashed with box cutters. And so it's literally my identity is split in these two, across these two cultures, these two continents, these two cultures. I really feel a product of that. And it didn't feel right to just be like, in a way, I felt like it was playing the victim card to say, oh, I'm a black man. Look, I've suffered so much. And when it didn't feel like my reality, there's times in my life when, no, it, I had advantages and, you know, they benefited my, my life and my experience. And, and I think, you know, that's true of many, many people. You know, there are people who are very unlucky, who are very poor, who are, you know, who get the short end of the stick, who uh, it's not my case. And I think it's important to see those distinctions. And the other one is I'm really bothered by um, polarization. That really, really irks me. This idea is that, you know, well, you're either a Democrat or a Republican. And if you're one or the other, you subscribe to everything one believes or everything the other believes. And that's literally not reality anywhere in the world. And that's true of many, many things. It's true of the black and white conversation. You know, there's lots of gray and shade and overlap in the middle. And at that moment, I was, you know, looking for how can I share something that... Um, Mostly, I just didn't want to repeat what was already like being, you know, was on loop on Instagram. There are a lot of people posting a lot of things. And I'm like, if I'm going to contribute something to this conversation, it needs to be personal. It needs to be meaningful. It needs to add something to the conversation. Otherwise, I'm just adding to the noise. Hmm. And it seemed to me that highlighting that, sure, I am, yes, a black man. And I am, you know... Uh, uh, I have been a victim of racism in many, many instances. And I chose to highlight those when I was youngest um, because those were the most meaningful and the most damaging, I think, to me. Um, I still experience racism today, but I'm much more mature and I can 
deal with it differently. But I also wanted to highlight that, you know, I've made choices that I was able to make because I was lucky to have these things that were bestowed on me, you know? And, um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to point that out. And, Hmm. and I thought this was, it was a way of doing it. Just like sharing the two sides of the same coin. I'm, I'm a product, the person I am, I'm a product of all of those experiences. Sometimes I'm a victim and sometimes I'm, I have privilege that, you know, advantages that other people don't. Hmm. And, and the world is that complex for real. So, yeah, that's kind of the thinking. Thank you for, thank you for sharing all that. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for giving it some voice. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I will. Uh, I'll also link to those two Instagram posts in the show notes if people want to read them. I you you had a great. Um, not not only were the posts really really wonderful, but um, the captions were really in- interesting as well, and shared some more of your <laughs> thoughts. And um, yeah, I'll I'll link to those. They took me a long time. Like the those posts were the product of probably a month wow. of like thinking and you know. Um, reading and listening like that was one of the key words but listening to what was happening and so yeah I yeah I hope it helps people you know see and understand and particularly in the climbing world um, which I care about a lot and I think we often pride ourselves on being more progressive maybe and more different than mainstream culture but i think we're also not immune to it so Hmm. um, yeah i think it's it's good for us as climbers to have those conversations too and yeah shout out to all the people who are advocating for just a better climbing world Hmm. i had a listener submit a question for you Mm mm-hmm He wanted to know, with the BLM protests and the huge social change going on right now, he wanted to know if you've seen climbers trying to be more inclusive. And I thought this was a great question. He said, could we get some examples of people employing some good tact and also some bad tact? The fact of the matter is, by virtue of lockdown and COVID and I can say like my contact with the climbing world has been like vastly removed since basically the, like the bulk of the BLM protests. So I can't say that I've noticed any significant change, but just because I haven't had the opportunity so much, I think it's always hard to do, but I have to say that overall there is kind of a, a tone deafness to the whole topic. It's not, not necessarily, you know, um, it's kind of a passive denial about really important topics in climbing. This idea, like, we don't want to deal with politics. You know, we don't want to, let's just climb. Like, it's climbing mm-hmm. that we love. Let's bring it together and just live in this little happy bubble. Let's just go um, outside and be in nature and be exactly from the whole system it's fine. Like we, we're not racist and we're not, Hmm. you know, so, and it's complicated because to some extent I understand that sentiment and to some extent it's true. The problem is, um, the passive part, you can't ignore that it's real. One thing that was always, 
kind of saddened me as, as much as I, I'm like, I'm a lifetime climber and I've always loved it. I'm also other things than a climber, you know, mm. um, and always have been, you know, I, I lived in Paris and I was a graphic designer and I was passionate about that. I, you know, um, I love to go out. I love music. I love to go out, do other things. And I do have trouble when I hang out with people who live, breathe, eat, and talk about climbing like 24 hours a day. Um, I feel like that is, it's kind of a limiting, you know, it's a handicap in connecting to the rest of the world. And it becomes more striking when you start talking about, you know, sensitive topics like racism, like um, discrimination, because essentially if you just stay in this bubble, you're ignoring these issues that are real, that exist in the world and that, you know, and by this denial, you're also participating in them. Um, so it's, it's a little, it's complicated, but um, I, I look forward to, you know, a climbing culture that grows and expands and can address these issues and grow up essentially, you know, it's like, it's okay that it's been that way, you know, up until now. Um, it, it was wrong, but it happened for various reasons and it was born out of passion and, but, it also can't stay this way that mm. that's really bad, you know, and the alarm bell has been sounded. We've had enough opportunity to address this and we're not immune. The climbing community is not immune from it. So yeah, I hope to see, you know, future generations of climbers just, you know, be able to address it tactfully. Like your, your listener was saying, I will say one thing that I did notice is climbers not being very responsible with their like, around covid uh, restrictions mm. um just going back into this bubble going to the crag and like leaving everything you know out there including masks and really just paying no extra attention i've had to leave a crag because i was uncomfortable on how people were behaving and i didn't want to risk my family or you know and it seemed like a shame because it was pretty obvious you know there were too many people in the area it was so I don't want to point fingers. I don't want to, it's, you know, it's hard, but climbers do need to act more responsibly. And yeah, because I think there's a power in climbing that can help change the world. It's part of why I'm so passionate about it. But yeah, we, we also have to behave like intelligent um, adults living in 2020. <laughs> so, because <laughs> that matters it's very different from being intelligent adults living in you know 1979 was one thing you know 1992 was another thing 2020 is a different thing time matters and this is this is where we are now and we have to address that with responsibility and that means paying attention to the people around us being more considerate and communicating and maybe dealing with a few hard issues so but again not to be pessimistic, shout out to all the people who are, you know, doing work around that. Um, the Kaya team, uh, Chris Hampton, again, um, Graham Zimmerman, so many people, you know, just pushing positive message uh, and growing who we are. Uh, yeah. Tommy Caldwell, Alex, for sure. Uh, everybody's like pushing in the right direction. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic still, but everybody's going to have to like put some elbow grease in this for this to get better. Hmm. So, yeah. 
It's so interesting to read some of your experiences that go all the way back to when you were a kid, 12 years old. And it's it's so fascinating for me to think about what it must be like to to be experiencing this social movement, this social change as a father. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't help but wonder, what do you hope the world looks like when your kids grow up? I hope that, I mean, I think the thing I hope for the most is that it's more tolerant. Like, really, people are going to get upset because the color of my skin? Really? Like, how? Why? You don't even know me. You don't even, never even talk to me. But you're just going to give me the stink eye or make some rude comment or, like, how is that? How is that good in any way? And I hope, yeah, like, I hope the world, I hope the human potential which is so, so amazingly great. Uh, it gets shared with more people, I think. I think it's kind of lopsided. If more people have access to education, um, <laughs> education and healthcare, that would be nice. Like, not just in America, where it's like, again, particularly sensitive subject, but you have to remember there's a whole world out there of other countries that, you know, also don't, people don't have those advantages. And yeah, I hope more people have those opportunities because we have like too many people have too much so there's stuff to share with everyone um but you know i don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime but i hope my my kids get to see some of that world Hmm. yeah more tolerance would be a good a good start thanks for that yeah i mean that's already huge and it seems like so much to ask for at this point so um but yeah i hope you know my my children won't get you know they won't not get a job because their dad was black you know or some weird thing like that which literally is still kind of a reality today so yeah or whatever their sexual preference will be or religious preference or just what they believe in them in their own home and in their own heart and how they choose to dress and that it doesn't hinder them in that the world doesn't make that a hindrance. So fingers crossed. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to uh, go ahead. uh, I was going to say, I also believe that everyone can participate in that idea. It's not just a political idea. It's not just a, of a pipe dream but the the way that changes is everybody making small changes you know and if everybody makes tiny little changes that's how it makes it a big change that is more likely to happen and i think climbing is a huge powerful engine to amplify that change so my that last one you read me being a black man in america um and Without going into details, I'm also struggling with a visa. And in all the time that I've lived in the United States, my wife has been unable to work. So all of those sacrifices are lined up with this idea that I believe that the work I can do here has some power to change the world in some small way. Hmm. I think better climbing makes better people. And better people will make a better world. So... uh, 
climbing doesn't have to be immune to it. We can, we can, it fits. We can still be passionate and do the things that we love and do it in a way that actually contributes positively. Love that. Love that idea. I would love to ask you another question about your kids. Yeah, for sure. So this is another listener question. This is actually from my, uh, my brother-in-law, Joe, who supports the podcast as well. Cool. He wrote, and, and he's a father of two. Mm-hmm. He wrote, I would love to hear Tande talk about being a dad and also someone that participates in a potentially high consequence pastime. Mm-hmm. How does he manage progression and risk of injury? How does he look at risk for himself? And how does he prepare to take on more risk to move the bar up a notch? And finally, how does he manage risk for his kids and how does he introduce them to it in a healthy way? Yeah, that's a really cool one because that's one um, I've actually had conversations about about this with my my wife. I was pretty adamant when when my daughter was young, if she was going to do something risky to not immediately prevent her from doing it but to help her understand the consequences of what she was doing. Hmm. So imagine a two-year-old climbing onto a wall um, that is two feet on one side, but maybe, you know, four feet on the other side. And the natural instinct as a parent is like, oh, no, don't go there. You're going to get hurt. But the way I see it is um, I would rather uh, my children learn about danger naturally and quickly (laughs) Uh, you know, I'd rather they have one little bump on their head and understand that a certain action can have a certain consequence as opposed to like protecting them for a very, very long time. And then they don't understand risk and they don't understand engagement or consequence. And then something very serious happens to them. So it's something I've thought about a lot. And interestingly, I, you know, I don't think climbing is that high risk all in all. Uh, I mean, we drive on highways and freeways all the time. We cross streets and we get on airplanes, um, which actually is one of the lowest risk ones. Actually, it's not a good example, (laughs) but there's a bunch, there's a whole bunch of things that we do on a daily basis that, you know, there's potential for serious injury or, you know, that carries some measure of risk, but we do it anyway, you know? And I think it's about, um, again, education, like really getting the kids to understand those ideas and supporting them and understanding that for me, the dream is that my kids are able to take smart decisions by themselves. I'm not there. They're with a group of kids and somebody dares them to do something silly like jump or I don't know, uh, pick up something dangerous or whatever. And they have the good sense or they have the tools to understand Mm, no, this is not a good idea. And maybe even help their friends not get in a dangerous situation, come get an adult. Or So it's tricky because it's on principle, but what it does require is, well, you can't learn about risk without being exposed to it. Hmm. And um, it's interesting. I think one of the things we're going to talk about later on is uh, the RIC scale, risk, intensity, complexity. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's kind of a connection there about, you know, uh, creating situations that are potentially risky to a two-year-old climbing on the couch and jumping around while you can fall and bang your head on the coffee table, which I understand can be, you know, like kids die that way. Um, Hmm. I actually, um, we watched a documentary with my wife on Netflix about um, 
lawsuits about one specific IKEA set of chest of drawers that has a reputation for tipping over and crushing kids. And it just so happened that we owned one of those. Hmm. And so literally the next day we like bolted it to the wall because it's like, (laughs) you know, we were like, oh man, we had no idea. At the time, um, my son didn't walk. And like literally four months after that, we found him sitting in the top drawer. And if it wasn't bolted to the wall, that piece of furniture would have toppled over. Oh my gosh. So, you know, it's just about understanding risk and, you know, appreciating it and, and safeguarding from it. Um, and it's about information and education. And I'm really, I'm a firm believer in, in that idea of education and learning about something is, you know, it's not just me telling you, it's also you understanding. And so, yeah, I, I help my kids to climb onto high things and I tell them, Oh, be careful. Like if you, you know, one thing I tell my daughter, it's kind of a cue to tell her to, to really be careful as I tell her, don't break your face, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And essentially, you know, I, I really say it's a cue because I, I, every time there's a risky situation and I'm like, you know, if you, if you slip here, if you put your foot here or you shouldn't climb on this because it's not a, it's not a sound structure. It could collapse or, you know, I try and make sure there's an explanation and it's not just a, like a knee jerk reaction of keeping the child safe. Yeah. I think that idea of understanding and it's tedious, it's difficult and, you know, kids get upset and, and it's scary because essentially you have to trust them, but the sooner you can trust them and you can teach them to trust themselves and to make, help them make smart decisions. And it starts when they're like babies, you know, Mm. can't wait for that. So yeah, sorry, that was a bit long winded, but it's, (laughs) that's that's how I think about it. And I have thought about it a lot and climbing is a pretty low risk one for me, you know? Um, Yeah. Joe's a mountain biker and, you know, I read his question and I was like, yeah, climbing is really different. It's, it's, you know, people perceive it to be this daredevil, really risky thing, but yeah. I, I'd be way more scared going out on a mountain bike and pushing myself. I would say, yeah, like I think mountain biking is probably riskier because of speed. You know, there's elements that happen in a split second that you basically can't control or situation comes up or, you know, uh, whereas with climbing, things move slowly. <laughs> we have ropes <laughs> and pads and, you know, and there's usually, there's very often, you know, there's, uh, I think as soon as you start moving into the Alpine realm, that becomes less true. There's mm-hmm. things that move, you know, out of your control, falling rocks, weather, um, smart decisions. Uh, but um, in, in, you know, the climbing that I do anyway, bouldering, sport climbing, uh, sport multi-pitch, uh, I think it's pretty safe as long as, as long as there's no user errors. Right. And, and there isn't this linear relationship between difficulty and risk that so often no. appears in other sports. Yeah. Yeah. You can still be pretty safe. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, there's a lot of people who just go like scrambling around, you know, rocky areas. And that's actually much more dangerous than climbing. You know, mm. They're doing it with the wrong shoes. They're doing it after a few beers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's actually way more dangerous. Um so even, and this is, you know, now I'm not going to get into this. There's 
too big a topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's move move to the next. Did I answer all of Joe's questions? Yeah, yeah, I think I think you covered them. I'd love to to add and this doesn't have to be related to risk, but how are you thinking about introducing your kids to climbing? Um I mean, at their own pace. Uh I would, you know, it's obviously when when you're passionate about anything, you always hope to I guess transmit some of that to your kids, but I'm honestly just interested in in communicating passion to my kids i hope my kids are passionate about something climbing was my thing you know it was my discovery my passion my life it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be my kids so i expose them to it and you know but i always ask my daughter like do you want to climb today sometimes she says yes sometimes she says no and if it clicks for her at some point that's great and if it's something else well I just hope it is something else. Like there's mm. something that because I think having a passion it makes life so much more interesting. But honestly if you know if it's crocheting, well, so <laughs> be it. It's her thing, you know, and she can take it to the limit and be a like a world-class crocheter. Oh, I, I, I kind of hope so. That would just be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it could be like, you know, there's a whole bunch of like really corny things but people have pushed and just like you know, taken to next level and it's amazing. <laughs> so, and it comes again from that, just like that drive. And so I just hope they have some, some of that. So yeah, sure. Like I, I definitely take my kids climbing, um, take them. I, I hope they enjoy the outdoors as well. That's a really big one for me. I think the connection to nature is important and I want them to grow up with that a lot. So we go camping as much as possible and, you know, go, hang out in climbing areas because those are the areas that I know, but mostly because they're beautiful and particularly in Washington, like index is amazing. The forest around little size, gorgeous. Mm. So just knowing like I hiked my kids up there the other day, they just hiked up with me and then I was climbing with Nathan and then they had a picnic and then hiked back down and we stayed and climbed. But just that is, is cool. Mm. So, so yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. You touched on RIC. I'd love yeah. to expand on that. What is RIC and how does it play into your coaching? So RIC is, um, so the, the it's an acronym, RIC. It stands for Risk Intensity Complexity. And it's a tool that initially, uh, when I started route setting and I decided I wanted to become a professional at it, I really Hey friends, that's it for part one and I hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be available next week. A couple quick notes about part one. Tonde mentioned Kaya and a few other people doing work around Black Lives Matter because he's personally spent time with them recently and those people and organizations were at the top of his mind. He also wanted to give his thanks and appreciation to two other groups he didn't mention on the show, Brothers of Climbing and Climbers of Color. I link to both those groups in the show notes if you would like to learn more about either of them. In case you've never looked at the show notes, you can find show notes for every episode over at thenuggetclimbing.com. It should be pretty easy to navigate. I always make a point to link to just about everything that comes up on the show. So if there's ever a video we mentioned that you want to see, or a route that you want to know the grade of, or a book we reference, you can find it linked conveniently for you in the show notes. Again, that's at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you guys for listening to this one. I appreciate you all. Much love. Mm -hmm.
We'll see you next time.